0: You're listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to Off Script, October 22nd, 2021 edition. I'm Rob Weinert Kent, the editor in chief of American Theater Magazine. My pronouns are he and him. I'm coming to you today, despite my background again from Queens, the home of the Maspeth and Rockaway nations. Um, and I'm here
0: joined by A.R. Pierce, Associate Editor for American Theater. Uh, my pronouns are he and him. And I'm in Chicago. I changed the background a little bit. I'm at the I'm at Cloud Gate today or the bead. Um, and that is on the lands of the Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria.
1: And my background is not quite a default, but it's the, the public theater lobby where I have not yet been back since the pandemic, but I, I look forward to I don't know when the next time I will be. Colored Water, I suppose, will be the next uh, the Next play I'll see there. In any case, happy to be here, uh, happy to be anywhere these days. Um, I did just, I was trying to find a, a photo of the signature theater lobby. I just saw uh, a new production of Anna Devries Smith's Twilight there, and I'm gonna be writing about that. She's, uh, well, you read more about it in the magazine, but, I, uh, I'm intrigued by what she's doing with her work at the signature season, which is to have other people perform it, which uh, which is new for pro- professional productions of her work. So I'm really fascinated by that. Anyway, that's off topic. Um, we've had, uh, since our last uh, um, broadcast with Will Eno, we've had some uh, news and features we wanted to talk about. Um, I think probably the The one that had the most impact over the past couple of weeks uh, was uh, last Monday, uh, Jim O'Quinn, who was the founding editor-in-chief of American Theatre from its first issue in 1984, um, and who ran the magazine for 31 years um, until I took over in in 2015. um, Died. Uh, He was 74. And uh, his health had been uh, rocky for a little while, but uh, he was also the kind of person, as Todd London wrote in a beautiful tribute. You should read it on, on, on our website. He was the kind of person who, both in in work and in life, always seemed to be popping up again. And it it was he was. It's a cliche, and it's obviously not true, but he did seem like the kind of person who would just never die. Just would defy death. So. Um, he set the tone for the magazine in so many ways, um, which I'm still uh, learning from uh, and, and, and working to live up to the standard of. Um, and in terms of, uh, we'll be talking today, our guest, I can just sneak this in, Jamil Jude, who's the artist director of uh, True Colors Theater in Atlanta, um, who is followed a, a founder. I also followed a founder with a, with a big personality, um, and uh, put a sample over the magazine, but made it so easy for me to, uh, to try to do what he did and fill his shoes. So in any case, I can get very sentimental about it. I wrote a tribute. Um, Todd wrote, a, I think, a definitive tribute. And Misha Brisson also wrote a wonderful tribute. She's a, wonder, she's a writer in Seattle. And she, uh, she wrote specifically about something which, if I bring anything to the job, it's one, I bring the kind of thing that she talks about in this tribute to Jim, which is that he's, he knew there was theater outside of New York and he's actually really interested in it, and uh, that's something I uh, I shared with him. Um, anyway, that was uh, I don't think you got a chance to to work or, or meet work with or meet Jim Jr. Is that right? Unfortunately, no, no, just read. Um, anyway, it's a it's a it's a it's a loss that we'll be dealing with for a while. Obviously, he had, he left the magazine, but he was, still wrote quite a few pieces for us after he left um, about. About New Orleans, about theater there, where he, where he where he lived with his husband, and also about Poland, Eastern Europe, which was one of his passions. He traveled there quite a bit and followed that theater where it was not only aesthetically groundbreaking but also politically uh, very pointed throughout the Cold War and after, uh, especially after uh, when there was crackdowns. Anyway, he was yeah he informed the magazine in so many ways. I happen to this I don't really plan this but I happen to have a stack of magazines sitting there. So this is the very first issue, Sam Shepard um any case uh, that was a famous uh, famous cover in 1984 april 1984 so one day we will be back in print i, I guess i can't promise that but I, that's the plan so for now we're online and we're right here with you uh, i'll i'll just talk about it. the two other pieces i worked on um in the past couple of weeks actually take me back to formative influences in my life uh one was uh Talking to Lily Taylor about Wallace Shawn's *The Fever*. Lily Taylor, certainly, I saw in movies, but Wallace Shawn's *The Fever* <laughs> is a play that was uh, I saw him do about 30 years ago, and his work has been very formative. I haven't always loved everything he did, but he, it's definitely been a, a throughline in my work. And so it was fascinating to talk, see Lily Taylor do a new version of it, a little bit like other people doing Enid Smith's work, um, and to talk to her about inhabiting that world. She's done other Wallace Shawn before, but. Uh, Never sort of embodied his work, his solo work. The other piece I just I just filed today uh, was about a theater very close to my heart and that I spent a lot of formative years at, which was Center Theater Group, which has the Mark Taper Theater, Mark Taper Forum, and the Kirk Douglas Theater in the in L.A. Anyone following theater news knows that they announced a, a reopening season that was wonderfully diverse uh, in many ways, except that it was only one woman. Uh, it's a one woman playwright uh, represented in the 10 plays they announced. This was very controversial. People complained about it with good reason. Um, and then Jeremy O'Harris, Harris, as I think everybody knows, uh, you know took steps to withdraw his play slave play, which was going to open the season um, you know, unless some something could be changed. Um, what I, what I came to discover in talking to folks at T- CTG, was that they did have a lot of plans, a lot of COVID related shuffling and rescheduling. They had a lot of plans to, to do a much more diverse, especially on gender uh, gender measures season in the coming years, but that they, had, they hadn't nailed it down. I mean, it sounds like a convenient story, but it seems like they responded so quickly and were, were able in a week to, to, to sort of assure Jeremy and other critics in the community that their plans and commitments were actually real to, to do uh, majority uh, women-identifying and, and non-binary playwrights for their next season. Um, anyway, it's a fascinating story. It certainly is a new chapter in, in activism that I felt like we should cover uh, for a playwright to, to pull his play. I, and the, 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 a lot of folks have reported on this. I think the thing I was able to add to it was I, I talked to Pearl Clegg, who's the the only woman in the coming season about what she felt about it and her, her, her quotes about that uh, I think put this in perspective of this is a longer conversation and a large one that didn't start last week and it's not going to be over this you know this week um, so anyway that's that's a I can't make any claims for it to be uh, the best coverage on it but I think Pearl Clegg adds her voice to that chair um, we also had a couple round tables that we, it kind of came to us people do these uh, do roundtables out at various events and they often send us the transcript and it turns out to be a wonderful almost like a conference report could you tell us about a couple of those that we did this recently
0: yeah uh we had one about anti-racist producing uh mm-hmm. which is a conversation led by Hope chavez and it was uh five producers from uh, around the country who were discussing how to put values ahead of profit and make a more value centric uh, theater production model. Um, it's a conversation that's been happening a lot in theater on how to take kind of that pressure off of producing for money and centering, you know, the, the typical ways we do theater and producing in a more equitable way. Um, and then the second one came from uh, Francisco Mendoza, uh, who had a roundtable with a group of Latine Producers and curators from San Diego Rep, Latinx New Play Festival, Soul Fest, Greater Good, and Two River Theaters Crossing Borders Festival, uh, and it was a great conversation about f- how these places, in particular, but in theater in general, should be and can be creating spaces for Latinx artists or Latinx artists uh, and playwrights, especially in their in supporting their work. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they're both really good. We have another one in the works, so you will see soon about uh, uh, anti-racist efforts in DC theater. So we do, you know, hey, if if you're doing an interesting dialogue somewhere, maybe send us a tape of that. Uh, It's open call. Um, You also wrote some, uh, some magnificent stories uh, that, uh, you know, there's the Q&A you did, but also a semi-production notebook you did on an on a interesting new production in Chicago. Why don't you tell us about those two stories,
0: JR? Yeah, the Q&A was with Karen Ann Daniels, who is the new director of programming for Folger Shakespeare Library uh, in DC and the new uh, artistic director of Folger Theater. Um, so in that dual role. And uh, we had a great conversation about how to make Shakespeare more accessible to, to younger people and more diverse, um, people with more direct, diverse backgrounds, which I feel like I've wound up writing a lot about, like looking at both that conversation and the, the other piece that I'm about to talk about. But um, yeah, Karen had Karen Ann had some fantastic ideas about how to connect Shakespeare with the local community, especially. Um, one thing she points out is that Folger has a kind of national reputation and especially within the community, the theater community, but the local DC community, she felt like wasn't actually utilizing what they're able to provide as much. So um, she has a lot of great ideas and more that haven't been announced yet um, about trying to connect the work that the Folgers doing both as a library and like scholarly space, but also as a theater with local communities in addition to their uh, national reputation. And then uh, continuing with the the Shakespeare theme, I wrote about uh, Court Theatre here in Chicago uh, is doing a production of Othello. And originally I had gone into it expect because uh, uh, they had pitched us about their set design, which um, I've been to Court Theatre numerous times and this was the first time they were going to have people sitting on stage as part of their production and having the production around and throughout the audience. Uh, so I went in <laughs> prepared to write about that. Uh, the set designs from uh, John Colbert, who was the former dean of the theater school at DePaul here in Chicago. And uh, wound up fan- finding out that the reason that they found this idea was because they had a conversation with uh, Kelvin Roston Jr. who was playing Othello. Uh, they brought him into... The, the design meetings early on because they had this elongated process uh, because of the pandemic. So they were able to bring him into design meetings, get his idea and his ideas around the character and the way the story should be told. And they round up completely recentering or completely centering Othello rather than a lot of times you'll see Othello productions where it centers Iago and what Iago's doing rather than the, the titular person of the play. Uh, so. They did a really fascinating thing where they put scaffolding or on stage around the audience and had audience sitting in swivel chairs uh, in the middle of that and the action happening all around them throughout them to kind of really put the audience in the center of this story alongside Othello. And um, yeah, it had a very interesting impact in that it definitely made me at least pay attention more to everyone else's story. Uh, outside of uh, Othello and Iago's relationship, but um, yeah, especially Cassio, which was, this is the first time I saw Cassio played by a black actor and then just watching uh, two black men, not just Othello, but Othello and cassio both be manipulated by this uh, stubborn, overambitious Iago uh, who can't just handle the two black men are, are stationed above him. Um, so yeah, it was a fascinating, conversation to hear how they came about that particular production and and yeah talk to them about it i love it
1: yeah Yeah, it's a really great piece uh i especially love the the point that you made near the end where they don't expect to get this kind of time it was like a gift in a way to get this time but they were hoping that the things that they learned and the kind of things that they process that they did both with the design and with the with the the subtext and meaning of the play
0: that they could somehow that would become part of their working process, you know, and change. Yeah, the that, so that's that actor insight. Getting being able to get that uh-huh. that additional artist in the room is something that I, I hope that they continue in other other theaters as well. Hang on to because it clearly had an impact here, and I think it had an impact on a lot of productions. Well, I think that's a great segue to bring another artist into the room, uh, the Zoom room at
1: least, um, and that is. Uh, Jamil Jude, Artistic Director of True Colors Theater in Atlanta, who um, joins us today from Atlanta. Jamil, good to see you. Hey, what's up, y'all? How you doing?
2: Keeping it, you know, keeping it going. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, right. Like, uh, we like to call it pandemic producing. Uh, that's how we, That's how I'm doing pandemic producing. That's what I'm doing.
1: Yeah, I know we, we, had a, we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago and I'm fascinated to hear by, about a lot of things going on at True Colors. Um, one thing I wanted to ask uh, right off the bat was about the, the monologue competition, yeah. uh, which uh, for years, for 14 years, I think you said, there was the August Wilson monologue competition, which which uh, had young people doing uh, August monologues all around the country in a competition and now it, it's changing. Could you tell me a little bit about that, about... I think you told me about the, the thinking behind the original comp, uh, competition. I think Todd and, and Todd Kreider thinking about that. And then what the thinking is about the change.
2: Yeah, you know, and before I get started, I want a quick shout out um, and make sure that I acknowledge that I'm zooming in from the land of the Muscogee Creek here in what is now uh, colonially known as Atlanta. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about the stuff that's happening at True Colors. Yes, you, like you mentioned, uh, for a generation, you know, 14 years, um, we were able to deliver to high school students, for, for many, their first introduction to a black playwright Uh, through the works of the August Wilson Monologue Competition and as True Colors started to assess where we are as a company what's the work that we want to do we are staring right at our 20th anniversary season next year Uh, we've just been thinking a little bit about okay what is our legacy what's our history and what type of theater company do we want to be and for me someone who has uh, done the majority of their career in the new play field I was really excited by the contemporary Black writers because they are going to be the ones who kind of take what Black theater is into the future. So, if this was a program, our education program, our high school monologue competition was a program where we're introducing students to Black writers, and we were doing the work of one writer. what would it look like if we introduced them to 50 writers and that's when we kind of created the next narrative monologue competition which is a 50 of today's contemporary leading black playwrights will contribute monologues up to three monologues for these students um, so that they can have a compendium a book of monologues written for students kind of in with young people as the speakers Uh, we keep on hearing that Um, young people who are looking to audition for colleges and programs, conservatory programs, are struggling to try to find work. You know, they go to Wilson and they don't find teenagers, right, or they go to some other writers and they don't find enough black writers. So we are not just looking at this as a way to continue to uh, provide engagement for our regional partners. We're still like in 12 cities across the nation with three more coming online in the next year with this next Native Model competition. So it's not just about serving True Colors education goals, but we hope that it's a really field changing program uh, that you know you can go to one place and have all of this, uh, this wealth of work uh, from today's leading dramatists.
1: Yeah, that's great. I, I think, yeah, anyone who's followed uh, the American theater over the past 25 years, whatever, to even 10 years, knows that there's, a, there's a, an abundance of other writers besides Alex Wilson. Uh, black right. writers, you know, and in fact, in fact, some of the most exciting writing uh, coming out of New York and Winnie Pulitzer's, and anyway, I'm, I'm excited about that. I think one thing you mentioned about that that program was it was also one way that True Colors was trying to create relationships with those writers. Is that is that right? Could you talk about that?
2: Yeah, you know, well, so as a new play developer myself, I want to make sure that people see True Colors as that space too, right? We have I've built a legacy thanks to Kenny Leon and Jane Bishop, who co-founded the organization as a place where we respected Black classics. And while we have premiered plays in the past, I think our potential is to be a producer of more world premiere work. And I think we want to make sure that we are maintaining those relationships with playwrights, introducing ourselves to new writers uh, over the course Uh, of time it's going to you know move into and I imagine we'll talk a little bit about some of our new play initiatives we call it the next narrative program that's the entire new work program so we have the next narrative monologue competition Uh, the drinking gourd program uh, which falls under that is about co-premiering co-commissioning and um, co-developing new works by black writers so it's important for us to establish those relationships. And I, you know, listen, I brag about Atlanta all the time. I brag about True Colors. Uh, I feel like we are unique in the fact that our audience is 90% Black. We are in the cradle of the Black Mecca here down uh, in the South uh, with the rich HBCU history, with the rich political history. Atlanta has been run by Black mayors since 1974, right? Like there is something that is so uh, keen to black culture that I want to invite more writers down here to experience that because for so many artists myself included it wasn't until I moved to Atlanta that I actually recognized that you could be in an audience with majority black you know uh patrons and not be like oh this was just a special night it's every night here and I think for writers who have never had a chance to write for that type of audience who have never had a chance to experience that it changes the way you work. It changes your relationship to the work if you know going into it that you aren't going to have to translate it to make it make sense for a white producer or for a white audience. Here in Atlanta, uh, I I, I uh, do my uh, worst Suge Knight impression um, and say, you know, you don't want all those producers in your videos. Come to death row, come to True Colors, come <laughs> down, or we can allow you just to tell the story on your terms.
0: I'm curious, yeah, as you talked about that, was there a reluctance before? Like, I'm, I'm just kind of curious, like you're clearly putting in this kind of dedicated effort to put that message out there. So like, do you, do you have an idea like where the reluctance to come to Atlanta originally came from for artists?
2: Well, you know, I, I think there's just a lack of awareness. You know, um, Atlanta has a really rich theater producing history. Of course, I think people uh, draw the Alliance to mind um, as, as it is like one of the flagship regional theaters um, and you know hey um, Susan Booth and I we share the fact that we both have to take up the mantle after Kenny Leon um, the part of the organization uh, but you know Georgia Ensemble Theater has a really rich history there are theaters in both in town and metro Atlanta uh, the National New Play Network now has three member theaters uh, in Atlanta Uh, True Colors being one of them, Horizon Actors Express being others. So there's new work development that's been happening in Atlanta, working title playwrights amongst others. There is a legacy of of regional theaters uh, that have happened here in Atlanta. There's the rich cultural diversity that's happening. You know, I I think in many ways, our city and our uh, community has a lot of growth to do. And the racial pandemic um, has really brought a lot of that to the forefront. But I just don't think people knew. I think people think about the coast, New York, um, L.A., I think they think about the Mid-Atlantic and the Northeastern, Philadelphia, D.C., uh, Baltimore um, as play-producing centers. And of course, like some of the Midwest places, but I just don't think people think of the South as the place to go and make work. Um, and, but when people get down here, it's like, oh, how, how did I not think that the cradle of the civil rights movement, where all so many of our storytellers uh, have histories that bring their families back down through the Great Migration back down to the Southern soil and the Georgia red clay, like it, it, it makes sense to people. And I think where True Colors can and will, and will do, and thanks for this type of platform, continue to wave the banner, wave the flag uh, and say, here's a um, theater making Mecca uh, that we wanna welcome you to.
0: And it feels like, as you're talking about that, it feels like a lot of the efforts during the pandemic, especially in the theater community have been centered around making PWI spaces more welcoming to artists of color. But has it felt like there's been a shift to have more artists of color seek out spaces that are already more welcoming to them like a True Colors?
2: Well, you know, again, I have to speak to just my limited capacity. I'm like entering into season five, just as a staff member and only into the season three, the two thirds of which, you know, more than two thirds of which five, six of it have been inside this pandemic. But, um, you know, what I think is that I feel artists are looking for restorative places. I had a mentor of mine, um, uh, Paul Robinson, uh, who, you know, just he speaks to um, be around nutritious people, people who are going to nurture you, who are going to um, fill you back up, if ever your you know your cup starts to run low, and I think that there is a desire from artists of color who recognize in the midst of this pandemic, oh shit, excuse me, oh, oh stuff, I, I'm tired, <laughs> I'm tired, I'm I'm exhausted, I I haven't been filled up, and when they would work inside of these predominantly white spaces, that um, there was a energy force that they had to bring into it. So that when they you know retreated back or were forced into isolation recognized just how empty they were so now they're trying to find places to be filled back up and i'm thankful that black theater has always been there for artists like that and we continue to be um and i'm, I'm hopeful that as we reestablish some of these relationships that we are at the top of people's minds Um, when they are looking for nutritious people and opportunities to advance their careers. Now, of course, we still know that there are still some systemic issues as to why artists may not always think of Black theaters first and foremost. And I think, you know, there's a lot of work being done to uh, dispel some of those myths because I do think there's just bad information out there. And I think there is more relationship building. And I think the Next Narrative Monologue competition is a way for us in there, drinking gourd um, is a way for us in there, some of the, you know, Themes that we're doing around our plays uh, are just more ways for us to um, put those tentacles back out there, uh, and again, return people back to back home.
0: Yeah, sorry. That like I have so many questions off of that that I that I want to touch on. Uh, But as you're you're talking about all of these these initiatives that have been have been reemphasized and deepened during the pandemic and heading out of the pandemic. Like, can you just help, talk to us a little bit about how the way you see your theater's mission has changed um, from before the pandemic to now?
2: Yeah. Um, so, you know, when, when thinking about, okay, what am I gonna do as artistic director that Kenny hasn't already done, right? You know, like, what is it that, um, what value do I bring to the company? And I thought, uh, for me, at the beginning of my career, I was asked what type of, what do I want to do? And I said, well, I wanted to be an artist director of a culturally relevant theater company. I don't really know that at that time I had a sense of what any of those words truly meant. And I spent the decade or so after that really trying to refine what that meant for me. And I recognized that, okay, as a artist, but also someone who is civically minded and engaged that I can't separate my artistry from my civic in- involvement. So in coming to True Colors, the vision that I have for the organization and one that we've kind of taken up as our mantle is that we thrive at the intersection of artistic excellence and civic engagement. And right, and of course, because of the time in the pandemic, right in the first six months, three, five months or whatever, I started in August, the pandemic happened in March, or whatever that math is. um, It really showed us, oh, here's how we can show up in a civic way. You know, we started doing rapid responses where we were making videos and providing artists an outlet to speak to what they were feeling uh, in the midst of the twin pandemics that we were dealing with. So we're really leaning more into the civic engagement space, understanding that artistic excellence is the first thing that we pursue. Uh, so through our connectivity director, Brandle Jones, big shout out to him, through the next narrative monologue competition, which is asking writers to speak to the now, and then the next 75 plus years of the 21st century, we are really asking artists to use their artistry and not to separate it from their civic engagement. So I think that's probably the way in which we have evolved. It started pre-pandemic, but the pandemic has really highlighted the fact that these two things are inextricable. Uh, And theater, I believe in the 21st century cannot be separate. You know, yes, we tell great stories, we tell them well, But like if you really want to get into like an engaging story and you don't have to change pants, you can just stay on Disney Plus or Hulu or Netflix and things like that. We have to find reasons to get people to want to gather in public and nothing gathers people better than them caring about the community around them and their civic responsibility.
0: Is that where the idea for these community conversations came from? Is that or the emphasis of that?
2: Yeah, I think this. I think it's the new emphasis. They started uh, a few years back when we started doing plays like um, De- David Mamet's Race or, um, you know, True Colors had a conversation with the police chief at the time here in Atlanta. So we, there was already something established that, oh, hey, at True Colors, we have conversations around some of the thematic ties of the play that can be happening in the community. I think we... Um, made sure that we do a community conversation now in conjunction with each of our mainstay shows and we further that along just to speak to the things that are happening in the community like um just recently we did one about out of the shadows and how we can speak more to black southern lgbtq communities right like which is something historically true colors had done but maybe we hadn't um trumpeted it as much as we should have right mm-hmm. um so how can we make sure that that's not just like a secondary uh, idea, but that we lead with that. So with our pr- production of Marie and Rosetta, let's be out and proud about the fact that Sister Rosetta Thorpe was a lesbian woman, right? And that had a relationship with, uh, with Marie Knight. Like, let's not cast those things to the back, especially in Southern Christian culture or Southern Black Christian culture, where we have a tendency to do that. It's the responsibility of the theater to lean forward with that. Uh, so those community conversations allow us that way in and reminding people, that art is the space has has been and continue to and continue and will continue and will continue to be easy for me to say a a space for uh, us to engage with those types of larger themes Um, and it makes us listen right like right now in our world of discourse there's a lot of talking but not a lot of listening and what the theater does us do it 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 forces people to be quiet (laughs) for x number of minutes so that they can listen uh to what we hope to be uh multiple views into a a certain theme whether it be on stage in a play or um on stage in a conversation
1: you know jameel i wanted to ask you just real specific nuts and bolts uh about producing right now uh i mean georgia our perception my perception in new york is that it, it's a little different in terms of the pandemic, in terms of mask wearing, and 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 I don't. But again, I don't. I don't want to generalize, so I don't know. You tell me, uh, Maria and Rosetta goes up end of November. You ready to? You you tracking the Delta? You ready to let people in? Is it is it all all good? Yeah,
2: you know, there, there's just a little bit of a difference here, um, and I, I I'm uh, of course being facetious on the little. Um, <laughs> The pandemic started with our mayor, Mayor Keisha um, Lance Bottoms, but everybody in Atlanta, we call her Mayor Keisha because we're so proud that our mayor's name is Keisha, but um, it started off with her being sued by our governor um, over mask mandates. That's where we are. And that's where we still are. I just read, a, I just read something that uh, Fulton County, the uh, county that Atlanta sits in, uh, that they're going to uh, waive the mass mandates inside schools 30 days after the vaccine is approved for five to 11 year olds, 30 days. So that's not saying that, you know, when a certain percentage of the school gets vaccinated, it's just like, nope, 30 days and we're back to the free for all. So I think that's the challenge that we have as just producers. And I know all my colleagues in Atlanta feel the same way is that the city, the county and the state are not in lockstep. And we have decided to band it together as theater producers to say, there's a testing mandate. Uh, and if you don't want to subject yourself to testing um, for every show, get vaccinated, show proof of vaccination, wear your mask, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, wear your mask throughout the entirety of the performance. Let's do our part to make sure that we are safe. Because again, if we're going to ask people to commune with one another in shared space, we have to make sure that we're doing that safely, not just. The way in which we take care of actors on stage with stage combat and intimacy training and things like that and trigger warnings and things like that that like we. As a theater makers, we have always tried to make sure that our audiences have a safe experience inside of it that burden is a little higher now. Yes. Um, because you know it's not just psychological or or physical, we know that there's a, a real health concern here that we don't right. want to overlook. Um, but we I don't feel that our municipal leaders have helped us in the way that they could in order to, in, to make people feel comfortable with their return. And the added burden that True Colors feels, again, I mentioned that our audience is 85 to 90% Black. Black communities have been disproportionately hit by this COVID variant and also are willingly reluctant to return to these places mm-hmm. where they are unsure of um, how this night out may have long-term effects for them, even if all of the uh, safety precautions are being met. It's a it's a unfair burden, but we weren't guaranteed in this life fairness, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's... I don't want to be groomed about this. I just read an interview with Stephanie Ibarra, where she was talking honestly about how audiences coming back to Baltimore center stage were a little more smaller than she had hoped, you know, and that there's just... There's people just fearful going out. Now, I'm going to a lot of shows in New York here. And I think, JR, you're going to shows in Chicago. Um, but there's there's facts and masks here. Do you get the sense your audience is raring to come back or just like can't wait to get back in the theater? There's a certain percentage that are like that way. you know? Yeah,
2: I, I think the Metro Atlanta leaders, you know, we meet fairly regularly. And I think before we got to producing, so at the summer right before the Delta variant hit, I think we were all kind of like, oh, we think that there feels anecdotal evidence says that there's a... Uh, a rush to return. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think with Delta variant and with some of our friends who were the earlier ones to produce, the reality is that I don't know that that rush still exists. Also in Georgia, you know, we're dealing with uh, football season, you know, Uh, (laughs) there's a lot of competition for eyes. Yes, there's definitely a rush for people to participate in live events. Music concerts are back, football games are back, sporting events and things like that. Which, you know, it's always weird to say that those are competitors, but they are. Um, But we don't know that demand for tickets in live theater is back in the same way. Um, And so all of us are going to have to just step up to say, what is it, you know, how do we take advantage of the tools that we have to better reach out to people who may be interested and didn't know, and we just need to find more ways to hook them in. I think, you know, and we can decide if this is uh, important for the conversation. It starts talking again about resources, right? We at True Colors don't have the same resources as our peers at the Alliance for that um, benevolent marketing push to speak to and try to, um, you know, rid out any of the false narratives around the safety of uh, returning back to the theater so we have to be very judicious in the way in which we market our shows as to, um, you know, not get too far over our skis. And at the same time, we recognize that. I was given, I'm a sports person, if you haven't already noticed, so I was giving the to managing director Chandra Stevens Albright. I said our first show back is both our preseason and regular season. With our first show in uh, the new year being our Super Bowl, it's raising the musical. It's the biggest musical True Colors has done in recent mm-hmm. history. Um, I believe it's going to be one of the best ways in which we can actualize our mission of artistic excellence and civic engagement. So I want us to you know really focus our energy there. Um, and Marie and Rosetta is going to really show us a lot about uh, what has changed in the pandemic and how we can be uh, a better organization at getting our story out to the public.
0: Go on, Jay. Sorry, I was just going to ask because I I have no idea and I'm I'm glad I don't have your job because I don't think I could do it. Um, But I'm just curious, like, how do you weigh, like, looking at the potential, like, maybe audiences aren't as big as you want, um, maybe people are still reluctant, especially heading into Raisin. Like, how do you balance, okay, we still need to go forward with it versus, well, maybe if we pushed it back to, like, summer, maybe audiences will be... More willing, like how do you balance those things um, as you're looking at the potential for audiences to still be reluctant?
2: Uh, Yeah, um, I'm I'm thankful that I have a three and a half year old who bosses me around and doesn't allow me to stay too much in my head about those things. So I'm glad to uh, be a dad in that way and and being forced to play uh, doctor to her stuffed animals. You know, those those types of things keep you uh, keep you balanced in that in that way, but. as far as moving productions around, you know, we did so much of that crap during the pandemic, right? Like this production that we're going to start with November, Marie and Rosetta, was initially set to play May of um, 2020, right? Whatever that was, and we just kept on moving it. Okay, hey, maybe it can be in August. Oh, maybe it'll be a Christmas cabaret. Maybe we'll open it up in February. And you know, we've lost some of the artists that wanted to work with it because of other contracts and things like that. Kind of moving it around and. It's probably never going to be, at least never in the next two years or so, like an ideal time for the show to happen, right? There's always going to be another variable. I think also, while we have a responsibility to an artistic community, um, thanks to, um, you know, a New York Times article that came out right as the pandemic hit, um, only 14% of the plays at that time in Atlanta were written by Black playwrights. So, you know, let's, let's just start doing some like basic math. If only 14% of the plays are written by black writers, well, how many roles are written for black artists in Atlanta, right? So if the majority of Atlanta theaters are run by white uh, leaders, serve predominantly white audiences and are written by predominantly white playwrights, then the black artists in Atlanta aren't being served in that same kind of way. For us to do a show like Raisin, where 19 out of the 20 roles are uh, Black artists, that allows us to support our local acting community in a way that they may not have been supported throughout the pandemic, may not be supported uh, when the waves of um, racial reckoning uh, begin to ebb. I think we have a duty to our artistic community to produce and to produce at that scale and moving it back while it may save our shirts as a theater, it may also further disenfranchise some of the black artists who have been moved, who moved to Atlanta to take advantage of being in the black Mecca or to take advantage of the fact that the cost of living is a little lower or they can do and be in this film industry. Uh, we wanna support them. And I think that that's also um part of the work of a theater institution, a regional theater. At least that's what Zelda Fitchhandler taught me uh, back in my days at ARENA.
1: Yeah, I was gonna, that, that, that kind of touches on some of the, you mentioned earlier, this sort of debunking this perceptions about uh, working in Atlanta that some playwrights might have, and, and some of the systemic issues might be about funding. And I know I don't wanna stick on this too long, but I know there's initiatives like the Drinking Gourd and the Black Seed, which seem to be really about getting funding into the into the development process so that this is not a that, that that's not an issue there are other obstacles probably but not the funding shouldn't be one of them
2: right yeah i mean i you know it it is something that is just so endemic to our field that um forever we have undervalued the contributions of by talk uh, organizations i don't know is that yeah it's it's not redundant uh by talk organizations um and ask them to do more with less and also at the same time giving more to predominantly white institutions to do just a little and like that imbalance I just can't I can't rationalize I can't reconcile, right and I think now, with the wake of me too racial reckoning and all of the ways in which artists of color have spoken up and say here's how I've been harmed mostly inside of those institutions that have been resourced at a level that is exponentially larger than the places that they got their start from and that they have been nurtured by like it's 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 mind blowing it's boggling and it's i get frustrated like i'm feeling my heart go like because i can't speak to the rationale there outside of well, I don't know what else to do, right? I don't, funders just like, hey, maybe it's just easier to stroke a check to a big box institution and feel like diversifying that will have an impact because maybe they only know of the cachet of those organizations. But then again, the burden comes on these BITOC organizations to both be our biggest spokespersons and do the work on a reduced budget. it, It is such a vicious cycle So again, I'm thankful for platforms like this. I'm thankful for the way in the Black Seed Fund and the way it distributed funding to 100 organizations. And yes, $15,000 may be life-changing for some smaller organizations. True Colors is lucky to finally, just mostly because we're doing Raisin, to be at $2 million of expenses uh, this year. But like $15,000 will not go as far at True Colors as it may at another organization and I, You know, there are other larger resource theaters that, you know, will look at a $15,000 gift and say, okay, hey, this is great. This allows me to pay, you know, a couple of artists and and we also need more. But um, when they ask for more, they won't be seen as ungrateful. And I think there are fears around BITOC organizations that when we ask for, hey, can can we have some more please sir <laughs> right like um that we are seen as ungrateful and i i just want to change that dynamic i want to advocate for transformational funding of BITOC organizations i'd love to see theaters like true colors um like national black uh, rep um you know like um carrie house like st louis black rep i'd love to see us resourced at the same levels of those larger institutions consistently year in year out and that it's not just around programming but it's around infrastructure building, so that we can successfully uh, you know, uh, perform and execute our programming and also maintain our staff. Like I've, I've lost staff people because of not being able to pay them more and still do the art. And I don't like that our BITOC organizations, are farm systems, uh, especially as people are now trying to hire the diverse candidates. Well, where are they turning for those diverse candidates? the places that they've been nurtured from. So now we're being, and we have historically been picked from uh, to satisfy the granting requirements or the changing uh, desires of predominantly white institutions. So it further leaves uh, BITOC organizations under-resourced having to retrain people. Um, so I think there are ways for us to fix that. And it is not just money, but money and can go a, a long way in helping us secure um, a more fertile ground for the American theater field, right? Like just in the way in which we wanna do it with the next narrative monologue competition, we know the things that come out of BITOC organizations support the American theater and have benefited the American theater. August Wilson worked, was at Penumbra before it moved to Yale Rep, right? Like we know that this is the history of how it goes. Let's invest more in the bedrocks um, of the American theater movement, especially around culturally relevant theater. Uh, and then let's see what we can do. Maybe we won't have to face another racial reckoning um, in another 20 years like we did when um, Wallace Foundation, you know, and others put so much money into um, diversifying the repertory of some of these regional partners.
1: Yeah, I, I, I hate that there's a zero sum thinking there. I mean, you mentioned that uh, Atlanta or the article about uh, the low percentage of plays being done by, I think it was black writers in Atlanta, right? And you got to you got to figure out if you do the math, that would be all the plays of true colors. <laughs> and then, so it, it's like the, the 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 PWI's have to step up too, right? So it, you need both. You need both. You need a safe space. Those those places do, do need to be safer and do need to be more diverse. And somehow that has to go hand in hand with support for the theaters the of color, as, as you mentioned. Um, I, I, it does strike me that uh, you know there's this this season on Broadway there will be a plays by eight pl- black playwrights all the all the plays are by black, black playwrights um, there might be a ninth I've heard a rumor of one that might be coming but I can't <laughs> uh, you might have heard the rumor too but anyway so eight eight plays by black playwrights and I think there's a lot of attention on that um, and I wondered you know. Obviously, that's you can't speak for the entire uh, American theater or 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 black playwrights, but I wondered if if that was something where they you know, you're you're rooting for that success or you're 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 um, wondering about what message that will send uh, in terms of both the impact of just having that much that, that much work on on Broadway, which is not nothing. That's a has huge cultural impact, and whether people are are measuring like, oh well, this one didn't make that much money or this one isn't attracting the audience, I. I don't know. It seems like a live question right now because I'm going to a lot of these shows myself and audiences are pretty good. Uh, the reviews are mixed. I don't know. Have you been watching that from Atlanta?
2: yeah definitely you know like um you know like the uh the queen herself Issa ray said i'm cheering for everybody black right so uh you know no matter where they show up i'm gonna i'm gonna cheer cheer and root for people and i also think it's good that there are mixed reviews right like i mean it should say something that like hey there are a whole bunch of crappy white plays that have been that have moved through (laughs) those theaters uh it's good right like that is that is going to be the symbol of progress is that when bad Black plays get opportunities on Broadway, now we have really done something. So I'm still looking forward uh, to that day. And also thank Too right, I mean, you all know, right, like in JR being in Chicago and Rob and the American Theater Magazine covering the entirety of our nation, the commercial theater industry, Broadway is not the American theater, right? Like it is a part of what it is, but it is not it in and of itself. So, um, yes, I am celebrating that, but I also want to see a proliferation of Black storytelling in all of the other regions uh, across the nation. Um, I also, you know, uh, find I, yes. It is inevitable. People are going to see success rates and things like that, and are going to use this as an opportunity to speak to the reasons why or why not uh, these shows are profitable, these writers are profitable. I want to make sure that someone like Keenan, who is actually a friend of mine, who is a playwright for the next narrative monologue competition, that you know, Keenan goes and writes more plays, and that Thoughts of a Color Man isn't um, the um, the pinnacle of his career. Like I want it to be just a a a line in his bio but like that he has something that is uh, ahead of him you know moving forward so that's what i'm hoping for and advocating for That's why i want to bring more people like keenan down to atlanta keenan if you're listening come to atlanta i'm telling you (laughs) come to atlanta write a play for us let's let's do this thing Uh, i want to see more of it happening um so that we aren't just you know crossing our fingers waiting for and I also think, too, well, what I'm hoping for is that more of our theater makers who find themselves in the spotlight, especially Black theater makers, um, find more opportunities to come, um, come home. At True Colors, like I said, we're in the midst of our Sankofa season. Sankofa is the, an adinkra the uh, symbol from the uh, Khan people of West Africa. Um, and it, it generally means a journey forward begins with a look back. And um, so, as we look at our twentieth anniversary season, we've kind of sandwiched it with season nineteen. We're we're calling it "Go Back and Get It." Um, season twenty, we're talking. We're going to call it "Reclaiming Hours." And season twenty one is looking forward. So, as we're in our "Go Back and Get It" phase, I'm you know I'm hoping that we can uh, share that philosophy of Sankofa with others to say, "Hey, what is that? What are the roots? What do you have to go back and retrieve? What do you need to go back and bring with you that'll um, kind of steal steal up your reserve?" as you go back into um, or soldier ahead to the future. Um, Robert, I'm, I'm afraid that I may have um, not completely answered your question, but yes, I'm cheering for it. Yes, I'm watching it. No, I don't think Broadway is the end all, be all to the American theater. Yes, I wanna see more black work all over the country. Uh, and I'm glad that this puts it on a radar that um, may inspire more people to do the work. And I hope that as those plays make their way through the regional offices, uh, regional, um, regional centers, that yeah. black theaters, if they want them, get first dibs on some of those shows, so that we don't also lose out on uh, that, you know, on, on you know, on the first to market. Um, because I I can see how uh, some of my colleagues may want to, you know, uh, reach their diversity targets uh, by putting. Um, shows in their theaters um, that have already been vetted through the Great White Way.
1: Wow, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I, I, do, I do think putting it on my trade hat, it, it does seem like there, there's a middle category of shows where unless it's a huge famous flop, just having a, Broadway, having a Broadway credit on your resume is a huge thing for a playwright. And for, you know, maybe that play won't get, but I think it, it unfortunately or fortunately, Broadway is a stamp of like, as you say, approved, like it's had a Broadway run, Let's look at the reviews. Okay, they were okay. What was the, I mean, only a handful of shows actually are hits and, and break even. Um, you know, you look at Slate Plays coming back. We talked about that, you know, that was not, that didn't I think they even broke even, but that was considered a success because it was, everyone talked about it. It was, it's, you know, being done everywhere. So I think the measure of success on Broadway, although it's a punishing and, you know, competitive market, obviously, is different. And I think it, you reach, you reach that, that sort of marquee status and it, it I, I am hopeful that that will have an effect, apart from the fortunes of these shows, on these playwrights that will be positive you know, in terms of their cachet. And uh, I do hope they bring it home to, uh, to some of the theaters like you're talking about, like yours. Jer, I think you had something more.
0: Well, I was just gonna kind of keep zooming out as we're talking about the, the field as a whole and just kind of throw it to you, Jamil, like as you look back over the last year and a half of what things are you hoping the field hangs on to as we try to move forward and enter a better theater ecology overall?
2: You know, I, um, I remember early in the pandemic um, after the murder of George Floyd. So I moved to Atlanta from Minneapolis. So I've still very much felt uh, close to that community in 2020, right? Still now into this day, but like specifically then. So to see. Minneapolis wrestling with the challenges that they were at the time and recognizing that just blocks away from where Mr. Flo was executed is Pillsbury House Theater that I cut my teeth there with Marion McClinton, director, um, mentor of mine who passed away right before the pandemic started. And I was raw. I was very raw. And then at the same time, Rayshard Brooks was then killed here in Atlanta. And I remember joining a Metro Atlanta Arts Leaders call, and at the time they were very much deferring to Black voices in the room, I just remember being very angry and sad and just a mix of emotions and imploring my colleagues that color better because my business model, my art that I want to make relies on it, right? Like, you know, Raisin has 20 people, Marie and Rosetta has two, Uh, we're doing Fanny. Uh, The Life and Times of Fannie Lou Hamer uh, that is fresh off its run at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I think it's in Chicago right now. We'll be doing that as a third play of our season. That's 23 roles a year, right? Like that, you know, so if we don't double cast anybody and that's only 23 artists that we get to employ, I think I told you that there's, Carl Lindner, if you know Raising in the Sun, you know there's a white guy that has to show up. So like that's only 22 roles for black artists that we can do. There are more than 22 talented black artists in Atlanta. So when they go inside these other theaters they have to be treated with care. They have to be given health weeks and they have to be given opportunities for growth and development. Because if they aren't, then like, then where do we get to pull from for our storytellers, right? Uh, so I, that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that people take it seriously, that these statements actually become practice, that they find ways to do real training amongst their board and staff members and the people who are going to be interacting with the artists, um, that they listen to artists that when they speak up and say, hey, this didn't feel right. And it's going to take a long time. And there are going to be a lot of hurt feelings, further hurt feelings, and a lot of people who feel like, oh, well, I'm doing the best that I can, are going to be told that you got to do more. And True Colors included. I expect artists to tell us where we've fallen short too. So what I'm hoping is that we all take that moment of introspection and find how we can do it better, as opposed to maybe some of our mindsets pre-pandemic were, how can we do it cheaper? How can we do it maybe more efficiently? progress may not always be efficient. Uh, our push for equity is not guaranteed to be an efficient process. It is going. It is intentionally messy. So I'm hoping that all theaters, Atlanta specifically, but all around the nation, get excited by getting messy and getting it wrong, but doing it in order to be right at the end of the day uh, so that there's a strong community of artists that we can continue to pull from, we can continue to bring back home, and they can be their best when they're not with us and be strengthened when they are with us inside of our nutritious environment.
0: Yeah, and when you talk about that kind of support, it made me just think of how Passover on Broadway gave a mental health stipend uh, to the actors when working on that. Like, how do you see, like, those kinds of measures? Do you see, like, a Uh, a world where True Colors may go that route to try to help uh, and support actors mentally?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the work, right? Like, I think that's what we have to do. And, you know, the ways in which True Colors, myself as a leader, are not immune to some of those scarcity mindset things. They're like, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, well, with limited resources, do I actually have the money to provide someone a stipend if I'm already trying to pay them at rates that are above the average in town like it is they're all connected this is why we need additional funding so that we don't have to make the decision of are we going to support our artists uh, in their mental health as well as get them on stage in order to, to sell tickets like we need to find ways to do it all and again I think that's what that messy stuff is I dislike that part of my job of having to choose things but I have been told and a mentor of mine, shout out to Jack ruler, but that a budget is a statement of values. And I just want to make sure that, you know, I just want to make sure that that happens.
0: Yeah. And and as we kind of wind down here, I would just love to throw to you, just as you look ahead to your season, that's about to start next month. Like, what are you most looking forward to, to being back in person and having people in your space?
2: Come here, come here. Uh, my my daughter just got home and she hurt herself, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to console her and answer this question. Jen, um, say hello to the entirety of the Facebook community. All right, all right. Well, if I can't talk, then you have to go. Okay, uh, but um, well, I think the thing I'm most looking forward to is just a return to live theater. Like I'm I'm excited by just getting on stage. I'm excited by being able to tell stories to our community. I'm excited by um being able to put artists back to work. Um, It's been through the audition process and like um, just talking to artists again, getting the uh, commissions in for the next narrative monologue competition. Those types of things just remind me of why I love this producing thing. Um, So I think that's what I'm most looking forward to. I'm looking forward to uh, our theater community continuing to step up uh, and better serving um, writers, especially um, BIPOC uh, artists. um, And again, how we navigate that Uh, as True Colors, um, you know, and I I hope more people care enough about our work to find ways that they can help and support, whether it's financially, whether it's about just signal boosting, whatever it looks like, Um, I, you know, right, artists want to be seen. And I just, there's just so much work that has gone into sustaining True Colors over our last 19 years. And we have so many plans on how we can impact the American theater um, in the future. Um, and I and I'm just looking forward to the day where more people want to support uh, that kind of work. So um, that's you know that's what I I go to work for and um, and um, yeah excited for that.
1: Uh, I want to thank you, Jimmy. I want to thank you also for the scene stealer at the end here. Uh, I was just talking about mental health. The thing that's kept our mental health going is is conversations like this and of course seeing families too. So. Um, I hope we get down to Atlanta sometime to, to see your work in person there. Cause now we can. Again, thank you for your time, Jamil. Thanks for thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for tuning in, JR. Till next time. Thanks everyone. Take care. Say bye.